0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on the Apple Podcasts. The United Podcast, States has reclaimed SoundCloud, SoundCloud, and oil Growth in oil production in Texas and the Permian and Bakken geological regions. They have now put U.S. total oil production ahead of Russia for the first time since 1999. You can credit technology, the shale revolution, and lots of money with this advancement. Here to tell us more about it is Bethany McLean, the author and contributing editor to Vanity Fair and the author of a new book entitled Saudi America, The Truth About Fracking and How It's Changing the World. Bethany, thank you very much for coming in. Just start off by explaining to people what you learned as you made all of the investigations to do this book because there have been a lot of headlines about fracking, the shale revolution, the technology. What did you find out after you did all of your investigational work?
2: So the thing that obsessed me, the question that obsessed me was how it could be true that fracking could be changing the world, and it is. It's reshaping geopolitics. You just saw the numbers you cited but that the industry doesn't make money, that it's on this shaky financial footing. And how could both things be true at once? And so that's the question I I set out to answer. I guess what I learned, I came to this broader realization that this whole concept of energy independence, which has been pushed by every president since the 1970s as this exalted grand goal we needed to achieve, that it's somewhat of a a fraud today. Um, It doesn't make sense as a broad goal.
1: I have to wonder, you wrote the first skeptical article about Enron back in 2001. Uh, Of course, Enron collapsed under accounting fraud. Is there something that is similar about the
2: way that the shale story is being told today? It's an interesting question. I don't. I suppose there's a certain lack of transparency in in shale, but I think you can you can figure it out if you delve into the details. I actually think it might be the opposite, and that the problems with the industry are right there on the surface. It's pretty easy to tell that the industry doesn't make any money. It's just that it's not something we want to take into account as we think about it. Yeah. So
1: it's so interesting. We've been talking about this. I used to cover uh, debt markets very very closely, and we were talking about just this explosion of shale debt that got absolutely punished in 2014, 2015, 2016. Uh, And now people are saying, well, the existing companies are in good shape because it was sort of, you know, this was like a, a sort of a sweep of all the bad ones and the ones that are remaining are strong and healthy. Do you think that's true or do you think there still is a lot of fragility?
2: I think there's some truth to it, but the wipeout wasn't what it would have been because Wall Street was there. Wall Street remained willing to finance these companies. Banks remained willing to restructure debt. Part of that has to do with the dynamics that are keeping the industry going, which is the flood of pension fund money into private equity firms and credit hedge funds. And the credit hedge funds then invested in the distressed debt of these, of these energy companies. So the money was still there. It didn't go away. And I think the, the, the final answer to what you just said is that the industry still isn't making money. Um, the most recent analysis I saw was a Wall Street Journal analysis. I think it was either the first or the second quarter of 2018 that only five companies um, produced positive cash flow.
0: Energy companies that specialize in fracking, they're valued on how much acreage they have, right? How much acreage they have plus how much production they have, not on how profitable they are. How did we get there? (laughs)
2: So people have been willing to fund shale based on this belief that it's going to be profitable one day. And so in the absence of real profits, they've come up with other ways to value it, which has been multiples of acreage, looking at production growth. To me, it's very reminiscent of the first dot-com boom when dot-com companies were valued as a multiple of eyeballs. Because in the absence of traditional measures of profitability, if you want to value things, you have to turn to non-traditional measures of valuation. And you have to find something that's positive, right? something that's positive, right? But that's enabled this whole mechanism to work, and it's too cynical to call it a daisy chain, but it's meant that you can build, pr- private equity can fund a fracking company and take it public or sell it to an already public company, and everybody can make money But that, or extract money along the way, but that doesn't mean in the end that the industry is making money. The industry's net
1: debt in 2015 was $200 billion. That's a 300% increase from 2005. This is according to uh, to some Columbia University uh, professors statistics that you cited in a, in a recent story that you wrote for the Times, for the New York Times. I'm just wondering, can you fast forward for us? What is the consequence of the fact that these private equity and private debt funds are financing an industry that is held up with great esteem from a policy perspective, but has not made any money?
2: So I think there are two answers to that. One is a financial answer, and it worries me. Pension funds around the country are in dire shape. They, in the- absence of any returns in traditional fixed income markets, they've started putting their money into private equity firms. If the returns aren't there at the end of the day, if the daisy chain stops in the private equity uh, portfolios, that's problematic for pension funds around, around the country. And that's a real issue, given that they are underfunded anyway. I think the broader question, though, is sort of more of an existential one, even beyond the financial repercussions of this, which is that we're beating our chest about energy independence and how great it is that we're now the biggest producer of oil ahead of Russia and Saudi Arabia. But what does that really mean if there's a risk to production if the capital dries up? And energy is energy is the foundation of, of national security. World wars have been won and lost based on access to energy. It's incredibly important. And I, I don't like seeing short short-term policy in the absence of long-term thinking.
0: Just to pick up on the figure, Lisa, that you mentioned, the $200 billion worth of debt that has been raised in order to support the fracking industry, based on your research, would that $200 billion be better served if it was spent investigating new sources of renewable energy?
2: That is a really hard question to answer, because I do think that unleashing our supply of oil and natural gas has had some positives. Um, it's given us leverage. It gives Europe leverage in negotiating with Russia over its supply of natural gas. I think that natural gas is actually more real than oil is. Um, it's it's more economically viable than producing oil is. And so there's some really good things about this. But one other thing I was really struck by in doing this book, were the number of smart investors I talked to who are not investing in oil and gas anymore because the age of renewables is coming. The only question is when. And once we know the answer to when, the price of oil will go into a cyclical, into a secular decline and never recover. That's what happened with coal. And so for us to fall behind in the race to develop renewables is for us to look at the world as it is and not the world as it's going to be and perhaps seed American leadership in the world of the future.
1: Bethany McLean, thank you so much for coming in. Really fascinating. Bethany McLean is an author and contributing editor at Vanity Fair. Her new book is Saudi America, the truth about fracking and how it's changing the world. And uh, she was the one who wrote the first skeptical article about Enron. I just want to bring you some breaking headlines. Goldman Sachs confirming Stephen Scher as chief financial officer, also saying that they are uh, going to name John Waldron as president. This according to The Wall Street Journal. Uh, we will bring you more throughout the day as that unfolds. Coming up, Bloomberg politics, policy, power, and law. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with my co-host Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg.
0: Commercial banking in the United States, particularly in the northeastern regions, is our focus. And Don McCree is the vice chairman and the head of commercial banking for Citizens Financial Group. They're based in Providence, Rhode Island, but Don joins us here in our 11:30 studios. Don, I got to ask, you're 30-year veteran of J.P. Morgan, right? That's right. What What caused you? What is Citizens Bank? For a lot of people, don't know about Citizens Bank. They know about maybe the changes that went on inside the banking industry in general. But tell us about Citizens Bank and why you decided that this is where you want to hang your hat.
3: So Citizens Bank has been around for a very long time. Uh, In recent years, it was part of Royal Bank of Scotland, a big British bank, uh, which actually experienced difficulty in the financial crisis. It ultimately resulted in Citizens Bank going public about four and a half years ago. Um, When I looked at the situation at, at, at Citizens, what I saw was, an exciting opportunity to be part of a ground floor build of a brand new independent financial institution. Um, The strategy we've been employing and the strategy that was exciting to me is a growth strategy. It's an expansion strategy in terms of of client base. It's an opportunity to deploy what has been a very healthy level of capital. Um, And it really was an opportunity to provide a service level to clients that we think is, is quite different and quite differentiating.
1: It's an interesting time to be in banking right now. I'm just thinking about yesterday's uh, Global Financial service Services Conference hosted by Barclays in New York, and it did create a lot of concern that perhaps there wouldn't be the same kind of loan growth going forward uh, that there has been in the past, and this could be a headwind to profitability. What's your take on that?
3: So I think uh, the topic of loan growth has been in the forefront for for several quarters and maybe several years now. Um, there was a lot of optimism coming off the tax cuts that the uh, administration rolled out in, uh, almost a year ago now, and a lot of an- uh, expectation that loan growth would be quite robust. It's, it's been relatively benign. We, we actually have been growing much quicker on the loan line than most of the competition, and that's been a result of geographic expansion and client expansion. And, Do you have and, to
1: lower standards as a result? No.
3: You know, we, re- we really haven't, and I think one of the things that every banker will always balance is that question of credit and, and structure and terms and loan growth, and, and we're, we have a very disciplined process uh, at the bank, and, and we pass on a lot, and, and yet we've been able to grow. So I think what you heard out of Barclays yesterday is a continuation of a theme which is a real question around how quickly loans are going to are going to continue to grow in in the the marketplace
0: speak about mergers and acquisitions and how companies face the issue of whether they're going to grow organically or whether they're going to make acquisitions and also about the abundance or lack thereof of suitable candidates at a suitable value
3: so that's a uh incredibly uh interesting story for us. Uh, I was on one of your shows about six months ago talking about an acquisition that we did, which was a company called Western Reserve Partners, which is a middle market oriented mergers and acquisition firm. Uh, and and just to, to baseline, uh, our client base is about three-quarters uh, middle-market private companies, or maybe maybe some uh, uh, a little bit less than that. Uh, and our m a practice is really aimed at both the private equity firms and those mid-sized companies. Now, in the mid-sized company space, there is extremely robust M&A right now. And what you, wh- where it really drives it is the opportunity to grow, as you say, expand someone's business by combining with a like-kind company. But it's often a change of control transaction where a private family is selling out of their ownership position. Uh, we see a very robust pop- pipeline in our business and we in fact do a uh, survey every year of CEOs of our client base uh, and it's kind of spiked at the highest it's ever been in terms of desire to transact. Really? Both buy and sell. Um, now M&A obviously takes a long time. It's, it's, it's a you know, often a, a year long process as a company prepares and then sells itself but what we see in our, in our business is a lot of activity and our pipelines are quite strong.
1: You said there's a lot of competition. And for your business, given the clients that you are targeting, who is your biggest
3: competition? It's everybody. Uh, non-banks, right. non-banks <laughs> and, and large banks and well, I mean and private equity banks.
1: firms in other words, because if no, you're targeting- No, no, or, so think
3: about uh, loan funds, non- non-bank providers of loan capital. Um, so it's so like so, direct lending yes, funds. Yes, yep, absolutely. And, and you know, I've been in this business, as you guys said, for 35 years, there has always been robust competition. Um, and it, it, it comes in various forms and sizes. Um, at, uh, at, at different points in the cycle. But I think you can always combat competitive environments by providing high-quality service and attention but to clients. is this
1: time different somehow? No,
3: I, don't, I really don't think so. I think, I think what is a little bit um, different um, is there is a lack of demand, as you said, for capital. Um, in the form of loans across the board. So, so new money financing has been running relatively low for many years now. So there's a supply and demand disequilibrium, um, which is basically creating a, a more intense competitive environment.
0: Speak, if you can, a little bit about the lending that you're doing, particularly when it comes to real estate. I note, for example, the chocolate factory in Mansfield, mm. in Mass. You've been loaning money also for affordable housing projects. Right. Talk a little bit about that side of the business.
3: So our real estate business is is a little over 10% of our overall business right now. I was actually with real estate clients in Washington, D.C. yesterday, Um, our approach to real estate is really twofold. One is, as you say, we do a lot of community lending around our, our community reinvestment activities. And that's a big part of every bank's activities. And then in our mainstream real estate business, our our approach is really to select, uh, very strong sponsors and very strong developers and travel with those developers across the country. So, uh, we've been expanding our real estate in different parts of the, of the country and it's a business we, we quite like. It's, there's a little bit of pressure right now given tariffs and, and, and the cost of raw materials, but, uh, the feedback i got at least in the dc yesterday or area yesterday was quite strong
1: thank you so much for being with us we'll have to get, have you back in to talk about the confidence and why there hasn't been more demand uh for loans from the private sector don mccree vice chairman and head of commercial biking at citizens financial group in providence rhode island but he made the check down here uh to uh, new york and our 1130 studios here at bloomberg i'm lisa abramowitz along with my co-host Pim fox this is bloomberg markets
0: The Turkish Central Bank raises overnight repo rates to 24% in order to forestall a decline in the value of the Turkish lira. Here to tell us more about emerging market assets and the ramifications is Vincent Signorella, our global market strategist for Bloomberg. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Vincent, it's always a pleasure to have you here is this going to be enough to forestall continued declines in value of the Turkish lira? Twenty-four percent. I mean, come on. Who's who's kidding who? Is it, this is window dressing, no?
4: Always a pleasure as well, Pim. Uh, no, it's it, not so much window dressing. This is actually uh, very calming for the markets. There was concern that the central bank would back off under pressure uh, from President Erdogan, who previously made a statement that rates should be going down, not up, and actually threw the market a uh, really a curveball with that one, and then. As Essentially, uh, we had a consensus, a very loose consensus for 350 basis points. So this move to this level is is calming for the moment. The real question is going to come in the future when inflation begins to pick up again. Will the central bank respond in the future? Because 24%, which obviously sounds high to us, didn't sound high to me in
2: the 80s. Well,
1: yeah, but you know, I want to go exactly to what you just said. Mm-hmm. What was that all about with Erdogan coming out and saying they should drop rates and then just Hours, minutes after that, the central bank came out and said that they were raising rates. Yeah,
4: in. I, I, I can't honestly go into what the president of Turkey was thinking uh, at the go moment. Go into his mind. I, I, it's no, you can't. I'm not no, going to. Don't okay. Want to go
1: there. All right. Well, what I do want to ask you about is how much is this a turning point or a potential turning point for the entire complex of EM currencies? Because we are seeing a rally today, for example, in the South African rand, which a lot of people are pointing to as suffering the contagion effects of the Turkish lira falling out of bed. So. Is this sort of a sign Turkey is taking its currency crisis seriously and perhaps people will start to get a little more confident with emerging markets, or is that going too far?
4: I think confidence is probably a little too far. I think it's definitely a, a pause. Um, like you said, the czar is higher, up 1.2%, but we're still seeing pressure on the Argentine peso. That's down 1.2%. Uh, Brazil is is off the lows of the day, but, but still down 3 tenths of a percent. But we're definitely seeing a little bit of pressure backing off. The, it, it came back on a touch after Trump's tweet that the Wall Street Journal had it wrong, that we don't need to make a deal with China. China needs to make a deal with us. And, and some are basically looking at this. The situation with the tariffs is, Hard to believe if you want to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States that these are going to be of a temporary nature. They need to be far longer and lasting. So that could continue to weigh and and potentially continue to weigh on EM, I think. Vincent, do you remember the movie Patton? Yes.
0: Okay. Do you remember that scene where uh, Omar Bradley, you know, he's arguing with George Patton, and he says, you know, I can read a map. When you look at what Turkey just did, Mm -hmm. raising interest rates to 24%, at the same time that they are now requiring companies in Turkey in order to transact all of their business in Turkish lira. Doesn't this mean that if you want to borrow money in Turkey it now costs you a lot more how does that help the underlying
4: economy well it it really doesn't help the underlying uh, economy in the short term what what the hope is and this is you know if if you think back to the us and our inflation situation in the 80s the, the hope is actually to slow the economy i mean by slowing the economy you slow inflation the idea is you need to crush this very steep inflationary trend even if it means to slow the economy down because you can go back to lower rates to Stimulate the economy in the future. I understand that, but how is that going
0: to make it possible for these companies to repay their dollar denominated debts? And how is that going to make it possible for Turkish banks to continue to operate if they've extended all these loans to these? turkish companies
4: well with the currency improving it does help the dollar denominated debt because the the depreciation in the currency is what affected that that sovereign and actually as you mentioned the corporations that's a good point because it's the corporate debt that's the issue in turkey not as much as the sovereign situation so the the Local companies really did need a break with the currency in order to help repay that dollar debt. The question is, does it continue? The line Goldman Sachs just put out a piece, they're looking at 599 And they say this is the 61.8 retracement from the highs of August 30th. So if we don't get back below the levels of basically six 600 and we continue to hold there, the markets are likely to try the upside again and put some pressure on the government.
1: Vince, you're a former trader. You talk with a lot of traders. Mm-hmm. How many of them do you hear actually saying, "All right, I'm going into Turkey"? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> you're not, like none of them. Not really
4: that many. I mean, when you when you look at the overall picture, you know the uh, equity indexes um, that track emerging markets, uh, they're better on the day, but still within a downtrend. The the a ticker that I like to look at is MXEF. Um, that that's up a touch on the day not substantially and
1: the MSCI emerging markets yes the index.
4: MSCI emerging market um, stock index yeah. it, it's off the lows it's taken a bit of a breather but it's still in a nice down channel so we really need a trend break
1: a nice down and channel in other words it's headed for more losses yeah I, I don't think unless we get I don't think a nice down channel means oh, someone's getting down, their it's face ripped 12% off 12% this year there you go Vincent don't, Signorella don't <laughs> <laughs> Vincent Signorella thank you so much for joining us. As always, we love having you you on. Global market strategist for Bloomberg, a squawker on the other side, as well as a longtime trader who really has that perspective um, and uh, has had some very astute commentary over the past few months in particular. So thank you. Uh, Definitely looking at a little bit of a bounce, but it is far from calling game over on the sell-off in E.M.,
0: we turn our attention now to the land of groceries. Shares of Kroger down a little bit more than 9%. This is the biggest decline in six months. The supermarket chain missing analyst sales estimates. Margins also narrowing. Here to tell us all about it is Matthew Boyle, U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg. And you can follow Matthew on Twitter at BizBoyle. I like that. All right, BizBoyle. Thank Boyle. you, please do. Um, what's going on at? Kroger. I mean, you know, one day, everything's great. They've got new alliances. (laughs) They've got new joint ventures. You can order your groceries, pick them up at the store. They've got Simple Truth, I believe, the generic brand, the the store brand that's doing pretty well.
5: What happened? Well, they're doing a lot, but a lot of this is going to take time. You know, Pim, it's uh, very high expectations were coming into this quarter. You saw what Walmart and Target did. They both had their best sales in in more than a decade. So people were getting a little bit, you know, amped up. Um, You know, it's a retail renaissance and it just kind of shows how we go from, you know, uh, you know, Feast of famine, exactly. Feast Pardon of famine part. in in retail here. Um, but Kroger is doing a lot of the right things. They're remodeling stores. You know, they're doing deals in in China with uh, w- with Alibaba. But uh, you know, these things are expensive, so that's why the margins are down. So and, and this is what know.
1: I'm wondering. I mean, our investors just simply short-term uh, in their view, and they don't view any of this as positive in the long run, even though this is exactly what Kroger ought to be it's doing? It's a bit
5: of an overreaction, and the company was frantically sort of you know qualifying it, saying, well, if you take out the impact of the store remodels and if you take out the impact of the uh, price cuts they had made, their same store sales would have been over 2%, which so would have beat, you know, beaten the street. Um, But these days, you know, retail investors don't seem to, you know, have much patience for explanations like that. So I I think, you know, it was a bit more pronounced. The share drop was a bit more than I had anticipated. But these days we're seeing share declines of 8 to 10 percent, even when companies beat estimates. So when you miss, you're going to get punished. Do you hear from any analysts
0: or any experts who tell you this is an opportunity to buy the stock of a company that's got, what, more than 2,700 actual grocery store outlets in 35 states,
5: and also they operate fine jewelry stores that I did not know (laughs) yeah I mean they're all over place. they own Turkey Hill you know they own uh, you know food brands as well though they're they're currently in the process of selling Turkey Hill but Kroger is a very yeah diversified interesting company they've got a huge percentage of their sales in their own brands and that's very good for a retailer. that's that simple truth simple truth and others yeah yeah they're saying their their sales of simple truth were in you know double digit gains this year and that's that's very much you know a good thing for any retailer because store brands are way more profitable than you know the national brands like Kellogg and Campbell
1: though I will just push back a little bit I mean perhaps what investors are seeing is a company that is trying to spend so they can keep up with Amazon and uh, and the like and the Walmart yeah. but it has just a smaller base to work from and that if you have a smaller base at this point even though they are behemoth <laughs> yeah you could potentially be be really hurt
5: it's funny yeah to kind of say well Kroger's small I mean exactly they feel like the <laughs> largest traditional supermarket uh, in the nation but yet people look at them and I'm saying, ah, well, you know, what do you got? So it does kind of show, and it's not just Amazon, it's not just Walmart. It's Aldi and Lidl. Uh, remember the the German discounters on the low end, you know, uh, biting and scraping and getting a little bit Aldi. Of market share. Is Aldi? all Aldi, uh, yes. Aldi's one of those. Sort yeah. Of,
0: Aldi and Lidl. The hunts. You know, you you go into an Aldi store, a Lidl store, and you go, wow, sausages right next to toasters. I mean, but look at what they've done in the UK. In it food. is
5: quite <laughs> impressive, and they want to do the same here.
1: It's so sad that that's what counts for the hunt these days for for humans. It's <laughs> hey. like to go in. It's not. It's not to have an, a. Bow Cost- well i mean costco i think
2: is
5: an example say, of this toaster yeah, yeah. costco <laughs> right? is more of a treasure hunt uh, Okay. you know uh where you know aldi is a bit more of a well i'm hunting and, and look what i found you know a battery charger but hey it's, right it's, who knew i needed one anyway let's pick it up
0: uh could you just expand because as i said i really did not under uh, i underestimated the jewelry business at kroger
5: yeah they've got they got jewelry stores I mean Kroger wants you to be going in there and you know all things to all people if you you don't expect to be finding it there in the same way that you don't expect to find you know uh you know high end diamonds at at a Costco there, um, yeah. but you know it's there and if it if it drives a trip if it drives an experience, which is this buzzword in retail right now, yeah. you know, everybody wants shopping to be an experience. Um, uh, that's a, you know, a very good thing. Yeah, and from it's blueberries a heck, to diamonds. Exactly. I, it's honey, a a more profitable than
1: Matt Boyle, thank you so much for being with us. No Matthew problem. Boyle is U.S. retail reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg p Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.